At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Now, let's see. What, the egg now, right? Scrambled egg. Okay. Uh, I think I got some shells in there. I'm at Benihana's flagship restaurant in Manhattan, living a dream of mine, to be a hibachi chef. And my teacher is the executive chef of Benihana, Tony Nomoto. Tony's been cooking hibachi for 40 years. You want to move quickly so the egg doesn't burn. Got it. You want to keep the yellow egg color. Right, all right. Let's make some noise here, too. I didn't get to try any tricks that day. But of course, the tricks are a big part of hibachi bouncing the raw egg on the spatula, flipping shrimp tails into your chef's hat, and the onion volcano. That's when the chef builds a tower of onion slices, fills them with oil, and lights the whole thing on fire. In lieu of real tricks, I did my best to imitate the more percussive elements of hibachi. All right, chicken. Do a little... This is the sound of mixing chicken. Oh, see, but then I got overzealous, <laughs> and I just sprayed onions everywhere. All right, that's okay, though. It's a show. All right. What I learned as I worked with Chef Tony is that when you go to a hibachi restaurant and watch the chef cook, there is so much more going on than I ever realized. There's a system for everything, an exact thickness to slice the chicken, an exact number of shakes of the salt shaker. And you have to get all that right without cutting yourself, which I failed to do. I finished my cooking with one finger wrapped in a paper towel. Don't worry, it was only a flesh wound. So Tony, give me yeah. some feedback. What did I do well? What can I improve on? Uh, you did a pretty good job, but you need everything to improve. <laughs> <laughs> Cutting the chicken, and as you can see, your fried rice have a lot of white steamed rice left. I didn't mix the soy sauce in very well, yeah. yeah so, but. I, you know, you did a sound effect very well. Okay. <laughs> so we need to learn the sound effect from you. And I keep teaching you how to cook. Okay. <laughs> this is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. This week on the show, a window into the world of hibachi. We'll hear about Rocky Aoki, the savvy showman from Japan who created hibachi. Yeah, you could always take a little bit of truth and spin it into something more fantastic. And we'll hear why Rocky's legacy is so complicated. For the history of Asian restaurants in the United States, exoticizing one's own background was an important part of selling their product. Well, as a matter of fact, I came here in 1959 with a Japanese wrestling team and I went to school here uh, in New York City. This is Rocky Aoki. Just five years after he came to the U.S., he opened a unique Japanese restaurant in New York City called Benihana. 
It was 1964, and hibachi was born. We cook everything right on the table, right in front of customers' eyes. I think today's restaurant, we have to have a showmanship. The fact that a Japanese restaurant could take off the way Benihana did is pretty remarkable when you consider the history. Rocky opened his first location just 20 years after World War II, when America was at war with Japan. The U.S. government had put 140,000 Japanese Americans in concentration camps. Prior to the war and during the war, the Japanese were subject of the most horrendous kind of racist caricaturing, racist um, depictions, because that's part of the war effort. This is Professor Robert Koo. He teaches Asian and Asian American studies at Binghamton University. After World War II, the Cold War began, and the American government decided that maybe the Japanese could help us. And so the image of the Japanese changed drastically, almost overnight, as the good Asians, as opposed to now the bad Asians who are the communists, mainly in China, North Korea, and so forth. So the image of the Japanese by the 1960s, I would say, was somewhat positive. And Japan becomes almost a playground for Americans with some means to go and visit. And the whole exotic Japan, you know, the geishas and the samurai uh, takes, takes on a different level. So I think when Rocky Aoki opens up Benihana, there's this, all this fascination about Japan. Rocky passed away in 2008, so we can't get the story of Benihana's creation from him. But he told it to just about anyone who would listen, including Chef Tony, who you heard training me earlier. Rocky personally recruited Tony back in the 70s. As soon as I joined, he said, you know, do you know how I start this restaurant? I said, I heard a little bit about it. You save, you know, some money selling ice cream. He said, that's right. The ice cream truck is one of my favorite parts of Rocky Aoki's uh, legacy and myth, right? Like, talking about self-mythologizing. This is Logan Hill. He's a journalist who spent a lot of time with Rocky back in 2007 while profiling Rocky for New York Magazine. He did get a sizable amount of money from his dad. But the myth that you hear is this guy came here with nothing, pure immigrant success story, and he's like, ah, I'm a wrestler. So he laminates a newspaper story of himself with a picture of him in kind of a crouched wrestling pose, slaps it up on the side of the Mr. Softy truck. The ice cream truck. And then starts playing Japanese music out of the live speakers, putting little paper umbrellas and the Mr. Softy ice cream. And now he's got like the gimmick and he's got a sort of a sign on the side of the, the truck that says, don't mess with me, man. I'm a wrestler. <laughs> And, um, you know, and so what the, the, the myth behind that is, you know, that he used that money. That was the, the only seed money to create Benihana, which is totally not true. But it was a great story. And he did have the ice cream truck. Like, you know, so he, you know, he could always take a little bit of truth and spin it into something more fantastic. That skill that Rocky had to take a little bit of truth and spin it into something more fantastic was at the core of Benihana's creation. Years later, in a Harvard Business School case study of Benihana, Rocky said, what I discovered is that Americans enjoy eating in exotic surroundings, but are deeply mistrustful of exotic foods. So Rocky built out the restaurant with Japanese wood and other decorations from Japan. For the food, he turned to a style of cooking known as teppanyaki, where you cook meat on a flat-top griddle. Teppanyaki was created in Japan after World War II, when the U.S. was occupying the country. It started in a restaurant that catered to American soldiers. So in Japan, it's perceived as Western. But in America, it's perceived as Japanese. Yeah, that's the whole thing, right? I'm going to grill you the three meats that I found that everybody is most comfortable with. You know, 
beef, chicken, shrimp. And I'm not really going to spice anything terribly heavily. It's going to taste a whole lot like what you get at other restaurants, but it's going to feel thrilling. Um, But I think that in that environment, he made this kind of savvy calculation, which was, I don't want to be threatening. Within six months of opening, Benihana was turning a profit. Within eight years, Rocky had locations across the country, and he was becoming a celebrity himself. He always understood the power of a good gimmick. He got into hot air balloons and speedboat racing. Whatever he was driving always had the Benihana logo splashed all over it. He set a record for the longest hot air balloon ride, got knocked unconscious during the landing. The record stood for 34 years. Later in his life, he commissioned a manga, a Japanese-style comic book, to tell his own story. I remember him telling me once, like, you know, most Japanese businessmen, very straight list. They wear all black suits. They're very simple. I'm a colorful guy, man. I'm a colorful guy. I, lo- I like, I like to, be, to be colorful in every way. I like to be different. And in, this, um, in his manga biography, he talks about the decision to jerry-curl his hair. Uh, you know, there's a whole scene in the manga comic illustrated with photos of him. With like the, the origin song. story yeah. of how his hair became jerry-curled. And it's literally because he's getting confused with other Asians. And it's branding. So it's, I, who am I? I'm a Japanese guy with jerry-curl, right? Like, you're not going to forget me when I'm on late-night talk shows. And he was on late-night talk shows. But he saw himself as a businessman first and foremost. Logan says there was a line Rocky used over and over. Money isn't everything, just 99%. And he did make some smart decisions. He recognized that because he was cooking the food at the table, the kitchen in his restaurants could be smaller, which meant more seats for customers, more potential profit. Plus, the meals are quick. You're usually in and out in 45 minutes, and yet you're paying 25 or 30 bucks an entree. Not many restaurants can get you to spend so much in so little time. He liked to just joke about all these smart decisions he's made along the way. And one was knowing, like, you know, chicken is really inexpensive. And they serve a whole lot of just basically grilled chicken, not so different from, like, a fajita, right? Um, but they serve it for, like, a lot of money because they can add the sizzle, right, which is the, the whole thing, right? It's like the steak doesn't matter so much as the sizzle is what he was selling. Benihana became a party place, a special occasion restaurant. You know, the place you go for an experience. By the mid-'80s, Benihana was a household name in America. This man is responsible for the most successful oriental restaurants in America. For 20 years, if you wanted great oriental food, you'd go to him. Now, I'll come to you. With eight Benihana frozen oriental restaurant classics. Oriental best- That's Rocky in a 1985 TV commercial for Benihana's line of microwave meals. Rocky died of cancer in 2008. Within his family, he left behind a total mess. He was married three times and was not a faithful husband. He had six kids, including the DJ, Steve Aoki. Towards the end of Rocky's life, a huge fight broke out over his money. Rocky ended up suing some of his kids. After years of litigation, it was settled. Despite those issues, Benihana today is going strong. There are 70 locations across North and South America. And hibachi in general is everywhere. Now there are mom-and-pop hibachi restaurants all over the U.S. And the chefs are no longer exclusively Japanese or even Asian-American. Coming up, we'll meet a Mexican-American hibachi chef who's the kind of showman I think Rocky would have liked. I sometimes, I have my spatula and my fork on fire when I'm doing the whole spatula work. And at the same time, I'll light my chef coat on fire as an extra show. You know, just wait, extra wait, show. you light your coat on fire while you're wearing it? Yeah. Clearly, this guy loves his job. But later on, I'll talk with a former hibachi chef who feels very differently about the work. Stick around. 
hope you're hungry, because it's time for some ads. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. And you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. I hope by now you know that we just launched a new podcast. 
deep dish with Sola and Ham. Sola and Ham are chefs, YouTube stars, and a married couple. You've heard them here on The Sportful before. In Deep Dish, Sola and Ham do deep dives into the surprising stories behind foods. Then they head home to see what those stories inspire them to cook up. Sometimes, in the heat of telling these stories, they get a little sidetracked. Our biggest pushback when we had a restaurant was complaints about the price. But uh, everything was market, local, organic, made in-house. We made our cheese. Who makes their cheese? (laughs) We almost got a divorce because you were spending too much on French fried potatoes. And lettuce. And lettuce. Oh, my gosh. So much money on lettuce. We've got two episodes of Deep Dish up right now. One is about the history of Korea, as told through a rice cake. And the other starts with a police detective in Mississippi getting called to the scene of a car wreck and finding two dead bodies and a trunk full of tamales. Both episodes are up now, right here in the Sporkful feed. Check them out. I think you're going to love them. Thanks. Okay, back to the show. This is the sound of Chef Ricky Bobby in action. Ricky's been cooking hibachi for 20 years. He worked at Benihana early in his career, but most of his time has been spent at the kind of local hibachi places you now see all over the country. This right here is kind of like my little signature triple volcano, which is one volcano on top of another. Ricky's one of the best. He travels across the South and Midwest, working six months or a year at a time at different hibachi restaurants and training the chefs there in the process. Ricky promises owners that if they hire him, he'll increase their profits by 20%. And he's a popular figure in the Facebook groups where hibachi chefs share tips and post videos of their latest tricks. The Alabama choo-choo. Ricky lives in Huntsville, Alabama now. I spoke with him as he finished up the lunch rush at a local hibachi restaurant. First off, I wanted to understand his strategy with the table. Well, I'll come up with the grill, right? And the way I do my style, I am already coming up to the grill like I've known you for the past 20 years. And so I go up to him and I say, like, hey, how y'all doing? My name is Ricky Bobby and I'll be your chef, to, your chef for today. You know, how we doing today? Any, any, anybody celebrating anything? Any birthdays? Any divorces? You know, anything, <laughs> anybody passed away? <laughs> you know, just trying to break the, break the table with a little humor. Jokes are a big part of Ricky's performance. Then there's the tricks, which Ricky practices on days off to stay sharp. He says every chef begins the night with a few warm-ups, some spatula twirls or knife moves. Ricky grew up in South Texas. In his early 20s, he was a prep cook on a cruise ship. A senior chef there liked his sense of humor, offered him the chance to train to be a hibachi chef. But it took Ricky eight months of official training, plus another year on the job, before he started getting good. So you're getting more and more into hibachi. You're getting better at it. What did you like about it? The stage. I got addicted to the stage. Because I, I, on top of on top of cooking, you're also putting on a show. Yeah, and you have to talk. You have to be smiling. You have to be presentable. And people will want to get to know me. You know, want to get to know me. Where what places have I traveled? Where am I from? How the hell did you get into Japan, Japanese style cooking? You're Hispanic. You're Latino. I started to use that, you know, as my stage. A decade into his hibachi career, Ricky was making his living, traveling around from restaurant to restaurant, sort of hibachi consultant. He's worked in restaurants all over the South. Memphis, Louisville, Kentucky, Florida, uh, Louisiana, all over Texas. And, and wh- wh- where do most hibachi chefs, especially the ones who are traveling around, wh- where do they live? Usually, usually uh, you can work out a deal. You can work out a deal with some of the owners. Some of the owners will provide housing. So you have a house with like three bedrooms, two bathrooms, 
and you have like 10 people living in that house. And, and who are those people living in that apartment? Are they all hibachi chefs? Hibachi chefs, uh, cooks, back in the house, cooks, servers, managers, they're all there. These days, Ricky's retired from the traveling hibachi circuit, but he still keeps his skills sharp, working at local places around Huntsville on the weekends. He loves coming up with new tricks. He says hibachi chefs are always competing with each other, trying to one-up each other. Customers expect more and more daring maneuvers. That's why Ricky prefers to work at the mom and pops. Benny Hanna has to be a little more cautious with tricks because they're a big corporation, a target for lawsuits. Tony Nomoto, the Benny Hanna chef who trained me at the start of this show, he's still bummed that the chain made him stop juggling knives. But the local joints around the country, they're a different story. And Ricky, he likes to push the envelope. He says whenever he feels like he's losing his table's attention, he has a simple solution. Light something on fire. I do a lot of tricks in my hat as well. Uh, the flaming bowls, the flaming bowls in my hat. Uh, What's the flaming bowl? The flaming bowl, the bowl is basically a little bowl. I'm pretty sure you've seen the, the, some chefs use a bowl to mix up the eggs. Yeah, like the right? little so metal bowl, them. yeah. The little metal bowl. And the little bowl, what you do better, you can do two things. You can put like a little piece of like um, oil lamp wick inside of it, right, to glide up. Or you can put, if you're brave enough, you can put a little bit of drops of Everclear inside of it and you light it up. So you start kind of like flipping it around your spatula. And then from there, throw it up on top of your hat. So the hat goes up in flames and lands on top of your hat while the flame is still burning up there. Wait, so so you, you light the fire in the bowl with the bowl right side up? Yeah, correct. And then you flip it up and have it land on your head like upside down so the fire is extinguished on your head? No, no, it's not, it doesn't get extinguished. It stays on lit. Oh, so, so, you, so you flip it so it, the bowl lands on your head right side up and the flame is still coming out of the bowl on top of your hat? Correct. And then nowadays, nowadays, a lot of my friends, what they're doing is like they're getting their spatulas on fire. You know, I sometimes I have my spatula, my fork on fire when I'm doing the whole spatula work. And at the same times, I'll light my chef coat on fire like a cross, you know, as an extra show. You know, just wait, extra wait, show. you light your coat on fire while you're wearing it? Yeah, sometimes I'll light it like it was like some sort of like, uh, I don't know, like some sort of uh, X-Men. Just psh, take a big X across my chest and it goes set on fire for a little bit and then it just comes off. Ricky, that sounds very dangerous. It is dangerous, <laughs> but it's fun. But I mean, that's what you got to do nowadays. You got to push yourself out to the limit. So you're not just a, a would-be stand-up comedian. You're also a bit of a daredevil. Very, Yeah. Uh, daredevil. I mean, I mean, who doesn't want to play with fire and throw food at people and play with knives? <laughs> who doesn't want to do that? Ricky clearly loves every part of hibachi, but not all the chefs feel that way. I'm a redneck from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. This is Perry Saito. He basically grew up in the hibachi restaurants around Myrtle Beach. His dad came from Japan in the 70s to work as a hibachi chef and met his mom, a white American, at the restaurant. That's where they worked for years. When Perry was 19, his first son was born, and Perry needed a good-paying job fast. So he turned to hibachi. He thought it would be a stepping stone to his dream of being a professional chef, but he struggled with the performance part of the job. They'd be like, oh, where are you from? You know, you don't have an accent. And I'd be like, well, I'm... I'm uh, my mom's American, you know, my dad's Japanese. That's why I look like this, um, you know, and that would always get a really big laugh. And that I remember the first time I said that a table was kind of like a, it was kind of just on the spot. I was like, yeah, I'm Japanese. That's why I look like this. 
And everybody laughed really hard. And I was like, damn, why did everybody laugh so hard at that? You know what I mean? Like, is it that fun? It wasn't that funny, you know? But And and what was it? What what was the makeup of the table that laughed so hard? Oh, it was all white, man. All white. <laughs> um And why do you think they laughed so hard at that line? I think that because uh I don't know. You know, I guess uh they uh they saw an Asian dude making fun of himself. I'm definitely not a politically correct uh, person by any means, but it definitely made me think a little bit like, hmm, you know, what are these people thinking about me while I'm doing this? You know what I mean? Perry kept asking himself that question as he looked around the dining room and he saw more chefs joking like he had. The other chefs were a mix of Asian and Latino immigrants who often made cracks about the food being cat or dog. They'd meow as they sliced up the chicken. One chef in particular liked to use a fake Asian accent in front of the customers. One guy loved to sing. That was his whole gimmick. And he would sing like, you know, Lady Gaga songs and he would sing it. He didn't even have an accent, but he would sing it in this, you know, this terrible accent. And anytime you got behind that guy, you know, because the tables sit back to back to each other, you know, anytime you got behind that guy, man, it was it was torture. It would get to the point where I'd almost give in to it. And I probably did more times I'd like to admit. You know, and just, you know, okay, I play, you know, I'll play this little guy and then just be goofy. So Perry was trying to go with the flow. At times, even he pretended to have an Asian accent when he talked with customers. And he says there was pressure from bosses to play up these kinds of stereotypes. One restaurant owner, a Japanese woman, approached him after a shift. I walk to the back and I get to the back and she's like, you, uh... You you don't look like you're Japanese, and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, what what do you mean? I don't look like I'm Japanese. She goes, you don't you don't carry yourself like a Japanese man, and this is a Japanese woman. She says you need to be more Japanese and show show your culture better, and have more pride in your culture. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, you want me to have my, more pride by acting like I'm something that I'm not? Um, I don't even know what that means. You know, you want me to act like you? Is that what you want me to do? You want me to talk like you? I don't know. So that, that, was, that was always hard for me. It was also hard because there were strong economic incentives for Perry to play that part. The chefs who hammed up their accents and cracked Asian jokes made bigger tips. Perry wasn't into that. And customers noticed. More and more, when people came back in, Perry started hearing this. What's the kind of big guy, you know, tall guy's name? He's got a shaved head and... and, uh, and um... You know, he's, he's real quiet. He doesn't do a whole lot. And you're like, oh, yeah, Perry. Like, yeah, can we request to not have Perry? <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of it comes from that expectation set by the customer that comes in. He's looking for that, you know, fresh off the boat Asian man with an accent who's got funny little quips and makes onion volcanoes and, you know, whatever. Well, and I think... Um... I think you make a really good point, Perry, about about the expectations of customers. It's easy to point fingers at the chefs or to point fingers at the restaurants for encouraging the chefs. Right. But but if if customers are walking in and expecting that and if they're requesting the chefs who act that way and giving bigger tips to the chefs who act that way, that's not to excuse it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it makes it more complicated. For sure. And it, it, it puts it – it puts the pressure on, you know, whoever that chef is, um, you know, to decide whether he's going to, you know, really at the end of the day, give the people what they want. And, and I don't, I don't know if it's a problem though. You know, I don't know if it is or if it isn't. Um, but it, to me, it, it definitely is something that people are taking a lot of liberties with. 
for the history of Asian restaurants in the United States, exoticizing one's own background was an important part of selling their product. Here again is Robert Koo, the professor of Asian and Asian American studies that we heard earlier in the show. You know, you go to a Chinese restaurant, you got to have the dragon, you got to have a gong, right? You got to have the trappings. Because restaurants in America, well, maybe everywhere, is in some, in some sense a substitute for the actual travel to that place. It's a quasi-touristic experience. What the phrase I like to use is give the audience what it wants. I think Rocky Aoki knew that by combining just the ambiance of exotic Japan paired with food that is somewhat Japanese-y because it has things like bean sprouts and soy sauce and rice, but it's not as sort of freaky as a raw piece of fish might be. So he combined the two in a very, I think, um, smart way. And what made it more complicated is that the performers were themselves Asians who had to sort of exoticize their own Asian-ness for the customers. And I think um, this self-conscious performance had to be consistent with the understanding that the Americans already had of Orientals. Professor Koo points out that this issue extends beyond hibachi chefs. Asian-American actors who were born here and have no accent are often pushed into roles playing Asian people with accents. And this play acting, this ethnic play acting over time, what is the effect of that? Well, I think the effect of it is that it keeps Asians in America as perpetually foreign. If you're of European ancestry, you can easily be considered an American without any kind of friction. But if you happen to be brown or yellow, then suddenly your first impulse is to say, you must be an alien, you must be an immigrant, when that person could be fourth, fifth generation American. For instance, if you look at the food analogies, the hot dog and the hamburger and the pizza, all those foods originated in Europe. But very quickly, it gets incorporated into this diet of Americans, and no one ever questions whether a hot dog is American. But in fact, the Chinese food, the wonton soup, for instance, has been in America longer than the hot dog. And yet, the wonton soup is seen as perpetually foreign, even though it's been around for over 150 years, even though Chinese in America has been here since 150 years. So this struggle to be seen as American, as legitimately American, is a challenge that Asian Americans continually face. As for Perry, the hibachi chef and self-described redneck from South Carolina, after growing up in a hibachi family and doing the job himself, he left it 10 years ago. Now he's opened his own food truck in Charlotte called Katsukart Sando Shop. How do you feel about hibachi today? I still love it. I love eating it. I take my kids to it. My kids love it. Um, I'll probably eat it, you know, a couple times a year now. Um, you know, that, that's always going to be a part of my life. You know, whether or not the stereotypes or whatever are going to keep playing up, I, I don't know. You know, I, I still I still love it. But I definitely couldn't see myself ever going back and doing it again. My thanks to Chef Perry Saito, Professor Robert Koo, Chef Ricky Bobby, and Chef Tony Nomoto. 
Hey, have you heard that I am taking the Sporkful on a huge U.S. tour? When my cookbook comes out, I'm doing a series of live podcast tapings and book signings, hitting New York, Chicago, the Twin Cities, Atlanta, Miami, D.C., and many more. So go to sporkful.com slash tour to see if I'm visiting your city and get your tickets today. Next week on the show, I go to a restaurant undercover with New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells. While you wait for that one, check out our new podcast, Deep Dish with Sola and Ham. The first two episodes are out right now here in the Sporkful feed. This show is originally produced by me along with... And Sandy. And... Ngofen Putibuele. It was edited by... Gianna Palmer. And mixed by... Jared O'Connell. With additional production by Harry Wood. Special thanks to James Boo, Tommy Rupchan, Brianna Yamashita, Tony and Winnie Chin, and Madeline Lang, as well as to Tokyo Japanese Steakhouse and Sushi Bar in Huntsville, Alabama. The Sporkful team now includes Emma Morgenstern, Andres O'Hara, and Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Nora from Taylor, Texas, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Better.